You're listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. If you know any way that we can improve our content for you, the listener, drop us a line at hiddenhistory.show forward slash contact. To catch up on all our episodes and hear new ones every week, head on over to your Apple Podcasts app or hiddenhistory.show and learn something new today. I'm very happy to announce that Hidden History is now available on Spotify. Imagine the year is 1893, and you're living in a small settlement in the New Mexico Territory, which wouldn't become a state for another 19 years. There are lots of issues within your town, ranging anywhere from governmental corruption to a lack of quality education and a lack of public sanitation. In particular, healthcare, especially preventative care in your little town, is not the best. Personally, you suffer from toothaches, a sore throat, and oral swelling thanks to the efforts of a less than reputable dentist. Your neighbors and friends might not suffer from the same ailments, but they most likely are not in perfect health. There seems to be no solution in sight. No end to the health problems that plague your community outside of an early grave. But then something changes. A wagon comes to town, and with it a traveling troupe of entertainers singing the virtues of oils, liniments, and balms that they say can cure what ails. Do you believe them? And what exactly is in the miracle elixirs that they call patent medicine? Let's find out. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 35, Snake Oil. So, although snake oil, along with its accompanying personage, the snake oil salesman, are, in the minds of many Americans, inseparably linked to the Old West, Patent medicines and the people that sold them have a long and varied history that went on long before and long after the age of the Old West came to a close. Quick side note, I know a few of you might be saying, oh, but Ellis, the period that we call the Old West is largely a romantic fictionalization and historic revision of an era that never really existed. And listen, if you were thinking that, then yeah, you're right, but that's not what this episode is about. I've got a whole bunch of episodes planned about the history and formation of the West, so we can discuss that then. If you weren't thinking that, then I guess you got a little bonus factoid in this episode. So with that out of the way, let's talk a bit about medical quackery and fake medicines. It just so happens that, as long as there has been medicine and people who practice it, there has been fake medicine and people who practice it. I did a really great episode that, among other things, talks about radioactive medical quackery in the 20th century. If you're interested in checking it out, give a listen to episode 6, Dem Bones. As is the case for lots of things, tracing the definitive point of inception for quackery is impossible. There have always been medical practices that promised to provide miracle cures while actually being exceptionally harmful. Ancient societies practiced what's called trepanation, 
which is the boring, cutting, or scraping of a hole clear through the skull to allow the brain to breathe. It was thought that it could cure migraines. And yes, I will save you a quick Google search. There are still people that believe in the medical benefits of trepanning. Some have even performed the surgery on themselves. Trepanation, like bloodletting, is medical pseudoscience. But these ancient and medieval practices aren't quackery, because one of the requisite elements of quackery is willful deception. But while it may be impossible to uncover the complete roots of the practice, the same is not true about the word. We can trace the origins of the term quack back to the Dutch kwakensalve, meaning a seller of balms and salves. Combined with the medieval definition of quack, which meant to yell, a kwakensalve was someone who sold ointments, balms, salves, and liniments in an extremely loud and visible manner. Patent medicine, on the other hand, comes from a type of governmental decree called letters patent that could be used for anything from establishing a new government post to granting new legal rights. In the case of patent medicines, the letters allow the manufacturers to use a government endorsement in their advertising. It's important to note that the vast, vast majority of patent medicines weren't actually patented, and that's for three main reasons. The first is by far the biggest one, being that in order to patent a formula, you have to tell the patent office what's in it, and then that becomes publicly available information. Manufacturers of fake medicines obviously didn't want their ingredients to be publicly known. The second reason being that patents on medicines, or rather, particularly chemicals, were a shaky area until a 1925 court ruling brought forth by chemical dye inventor Eugene Marcush resulted in what's called the Marcush Doctrine, which solidified the legality of chemical patents. Slight side note, if you want to learn more about the history of the creation of synthetic dyes, check out episode 4, The Color Purple. The last reason sort of ties in with the second. That reason being that, according to Joseph Gabriel's book, Medical Monopoly, Intellectual Property and the Origins of the Modern Pharmaceutical Industry, it was seen as unethical to apply for patents on medicine throughout most of the 1800s. Once or twice in this episode, but also possibly not at all, I might refer to patent medicines as nostrums, which is another name for them that comes from the Latin phrase nostrum remedium, which means our cure. Whew. Now that all that exposition's out of the way, let's dive right into some more exposition. So patent medicines have been around for hundreds of years, and in America they're primarily associated with the lawless anarchy that was the Wild West. Now, as you may be able to recall from my interjection at the beginning of the episode, the notion of the Wild West is extremely complicated and heavily critiqued by a lot of historians, myself included. Just thinking now that it might be a little bit presumptuous to call myself a historian, but hey, I've been doing this podcast for a long time, so why not? Anyway, 
I would posit that the reason we heavily associate the patent medicine with the Old West is not just because of their prevalence during the time. After all, this is a practice that has been around for hundreds of years. If that were the only criteria, then we could just as easily associate them with the colonial period, or the first industrial revolution. But we don't do that. Ours is a mental context of the tawdry horse-drawn medicine shows run by a self-proclaimed doctor with a ridiculous name. Why? Well, I would say that it's because the age of the western frontier coincided with the almost absolute disappearance of the patent medicine. Depending on who you ask, you'll get varying answers on when the frontier age ended. Dates range anywhere from 1904 to 1920. For the purpose of this episode, I'm going to use the year 1912, when the last mainland states were admitted to the Union, as the cutoff point. Six years earlier, a 28-year-old author named Upton Sinclair wrote a little book called The Jungle about the wretched and unsanitary conditions in the meatpacking plants of Chicago. The public, outraged at the environments in which their food was being produced, demanded government action. They got it that very same year in the form of the Pure Food and Drug Act, which not only established the FDA, but also required the manufacturers of food and drug products to list the active ingredients on their labels. For many patent medicine producers, this was a shot through the heart, as a large amount of their active ingredients were things like morphine, cocaine, cannabis, alcohol, and turpentine that were called exotic things like Kickapoo Indian Sagwa, Baobab Fruit, and Indian Root, along with a host of other undisclosed herbal blends. The ingredients in these often incredibly harmful cocktails could now be publicly known, and as a result, a huge number of patent medicine brands closed up shop. These were medications that didn't actually cure anything just made you unable to feel the symptoms until the salesman had left town. Their sellers preyed on the uneducated. Another reason we associate the Nostrum with the Old West is because salesmen on traveling wagon routes thought the people of the West and the South gullible enough to fall for their ruses. Sometimes they did. Sometimes they didn't. These salesmen would come to town as a part of what's called a medicine show, which served to amuse and engage people as a means of advertising its wares. Sometimes people were fully aware of the fraud perpetrated by these hucksters, and only came for entertainment which might be absent from their community for years at a time. Other times, the shills the salesman paid to stand in the crowd and give spontaneous testimonials proved convincing, and a sale was made. Though the introduction of the Pure Food and Drug Act was the death knell for many patent medicines, others survived and even thrived. After the Civil War, a Confederate veteran by the name of John Pemberton created a patent tonic that was said to cure anything from addiction to impotence. He called it Coca-Cola. I can't believe I'm about to make my third episode plug in this episode. But if you want to learn about the most interesting economic phenomenon in the history of Coke, check out episode 5, Time in a Bottle. 
But the introduction of the Pure Food and Drug Act was not always the end of the medicine show. They had to readapt to their new surroundings, and a lot of them focused on being traveling entertainment groups. Some medicine shows lasted until the 1990s as traveling troops throughout the West and South. So we've talked about a whole number of things. The history of the terminology, the association with the West, and the death of the patent medicine. But where did the term snake oil come from? Well, for that, we get to go back to the Old West and talk about a man named Clark Stanley. He was born sometime in the 1850s in Texas, and by the late 1800s he had made a name for himself as the Rattlesnake King by selling Clark Stanley's snake oil liniment. He was an exhibitor at the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition, which brought his liniment to a much wider audience. Oil extracted from the fat of the Chinese water snake has historically been used in Chinese folk medicine to relieve a slight physical pain and discomfort. Stanley promised his medicine could cure rheumatism, lumbago, insect and reptile bites, frostbite, bruises, toothache, sprains, swelling, and more. There was just one problem. In 1916, the Bureau of Chemistry tested its makeup and discovered that there wasn't actually any snake oil in it. It was only mineral oil, capsaicin, turpentine, camphor, the active ingredient in Vicks Vaporub, and only 1% tallow-based fat oil. He was prosecuted in a Rhode Island district court and ordered to pay a whopping fine of $20. So it turns out that he didn't get in trouble for selling snake oil. He got in trouble for selling fake snake oil. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. This week's music was performed by Chris Zabriskie. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.